I have a confession to make to you, my dear listener. I'm not living in the Bay right now. I haven't for over six months. I do go home every couple months to visit my parents, and Oakland will always be my first home. But I'm currently living in New Haven, Connecticut. I'm here for graduate school, and this is the first time in my adult life that I've had an apartment that really feels like my own, and I've been filling all of its corners. My roommate says that I have an addiction to Facebook Marketplace, but I just consider decorating to be one of my hobbies. Buying furniture from people online has been my favorite way to get to know the state. Going on hour-long drives through the woods of Connecticut to get a chair or something else precious. And when I say precious, I don't mean in the sense of money because most of this stuff is pretty cheap. But what I more so mean is that each of these objects has their own special energy and aura. I love the interaction that comes with buying something off a of Facebook marketplace. Sometimes it's as much as the owner just leaving the object outside. But other times, people invite me into their homes. They tell me about a family member who just passed away, who this object used to belong to. A brown recliner from Cali a teak table from Mario, a cream couch from Bob, a vintage bar with glasses from Nicole, and an orange step stool from Kathy. I like to call my mom back home whenever I have a particularly good find. Okay, so mommy, have I shown you one of the tables that I got recently? No, you haven't. When did you pick it up? I picked it up a few weeks ago. Hold on. Okay, you're sending me a text? Yeah, I sent you a text. Okay, hold on. I got to check it. Oh, really nice about that. Oh, my gosh. Um, is that is that tile or what? I, what is it's that? It's a tile mosaic. Yeah, isn't that cute? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm getting a closer. I zoomed in. Oh, but that's beautiful. Don't but, you feel um, like some of the other women in our family do that, too? In terms of... Just like kind of thrifting, finding pieces, putting them together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, it came from my mother's side of the family. Um, my mother, um, Aunt Isla, Aunt Rosina, they called it junking. And uh, what they would do um, on the weekends, they would hit the yard sales in either Los Angeles or Tulsa. And they would go into the predominantly wealthy areas and pick up beautiful pieces of furniture, art, and other miscellaneous items and um, bring them to their homes and decorated their homes with these items. And their homes ended up just being just extravagant, just really um, very, very smartly decorated with all these different um, items that they picked up while junking. So that's where you get it from. Yeah. I think in all honesty, it's my family's way of having lovely homes without breaking the bank. I, I honestly think that's what it is. Yeah. Um, admiring the um, homes they see in magazines and trying to replicate it, basically.
the women in my family know how to make a way out of no way to take junk and turn it into something beautiful. And I mean, we've seen other black artists do this throughout the season, people like Noah Purifoy, but there's something about homemaking, decorating a home, but also making everyone feel comfortable once they're inside. All the labor involved in tending to other people's emotions for either a very low wage or for nothing at all. This, to me, particularly feels like an art and a skill in and of itself. One that Black women have perfected for centuries, even when they had no other choice. Back in 1971, there was a modest building. It sat right on the border between Oakland and Berkeley at 2640 Grove Street. What used to be a mortuary with tall ceilings and chandeliers hanging down was now a Black cultural center and social club called the Rainbow Sign. And as far as Black membership clubs go, the Rainbow Sign had just about everything. On a given day at the Rainbow Sign, you could get a meal of sandwiches or smothered chicken. You could catch a reading from James Baldwin or Maya Angelou or maybe even a performance from Nina Simone. You could walk in for a dance class. You could roam around a black arts exhibition. The rainbow sign was something of a black cultural mecca. It was a real reflection of the political black consciousness that we've been seeing during this era in the Bay. It was a place to gather. For middle-class black folks in the Bay, the rainbow sign was a home. The club was founded by a woman named Mary Ann Poehler. With a background in console organizing, she had this kind of knack for bringing people together. And the people that she invited to perform often came through for little to no money at all because they knew and cared for Mary personally. There are these really sweet photos online of Mary standing and laughing with James Baldwin. After all, the rainbow sign's name comes from a black spiritual called Mary Don't You Weep, specifically from the verse, quote, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. This is the very same verse that inspired James Baldwin to take the title, The Fire Next Time, for one of his books. During this time, our dear friend E.J. Montgomery was doing what she did best at the Rainbow Sign. She curated exhibitions as an art consultant to the center. Here she is describing an exhibition that she did with Elizabeth Catlett in 1972. One of the key people on today's program was the internationally famous black artist and sculptress Elizabeth Catlett. Artists generally project themselves towards galleries and buyers or collectors. But I want to talk about the relationship of the artists to the community, especially the black artists to the black community. Art consultant E.J. Montgomery thinks a program of this kind has been long overdue. We are hoping to involve the total community in the black visual arts and the black media. What's going on, informing them of uh, past history of the black artists in the United States and the world, uh, also uh, giving them some direction in which to take, what direction the artists are working in, are they working uh, social themes, abstract art, what is the meaning of all of this to a black artist in the world today. Is black art really any different than any other kind of art? Uh, yes, because it relates directly to the black experience, whatever it is here in America or anywhere else in the world. 
Um, the themes uh, vary according to the parts of the world in which they live and uh, the things which they as an individual are involved in. But as a black person in the world today, uh, they have their own unique experiences and that uh, we feel they are trying to relate in their art in some way. In that same year of 1972, EJ also organized a national exhibition at the Rainbow Sign. It was called the Black Contributions Invitational. It was a show inviting Black artists from around the country to make work around the theme of Black heroes. EJ invited one artist in particular, living in LA at the time, to create a piece for the exhibition. This artist's name is Betty Saar. Betty Saar is a Black artist from Los Angeles who's known for her signature style of assemblage art. She takes small objects from various eras in Black history, including derogatory images of Black people. She remixes them, puts them in a new context, perhaps in a window or in a small box. The results are these works composed of many pieces. These objects that feel mystical and spiritual, as if they are part of both the past and the present. For this exhibition on Black heroes, Betty Saar decided to create a new, now seminal work. It was called The Liberation of Aunt Jemima. She took a figurine of Aunt Jemima, a mammy. In one hand of this figurine is a broom, but on the other hand, Betty places a rifle. Behind this mammy are images of other smiling Aunt Jemimas, and at the center of her body is a black domestic worker holding a white crying baby. And at her feet is a floor made of cotton. In Betty Saar's own words, My work started to become politicized after the death of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. But the liberation of Aunt Jemima, which I made in 1972, was the first piece that was politically explicit. In this work, Saar takes this image of the mammy, of an Aunt Jemima, a woman whose image has been used in just about every grocery store on syrup and pancake boxes, a trope and figure meant to represent Black women's subordination. Betty Saar takes it and flips it on its head into something liberatory. Aunt Jemima is powerful. She has agency. The mammy is Betty Saar's hero. In 2007, Angela Davis gave a talk at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, saying that the Black women's movement started with the liberation of Aunt Jemima. Right here on the edge of Oakland and Berkeley in 1972 at the Rainbow Sign. I see Betty Saar and EJ digging into a deep tradition of Black women, taking materials and old infrastructures and creating something new, making home, invoking feeling. And as we imagine the home that we'll create in our future art spaces, we can't ignore the history of Black women who have usually done the brunt of this work and have looked incredibly fly while doing it making it seem effortless. That is the focus of our episode today. I know both of those women. Uh, I've known Betty Saar since the late 70s. 
That's Mildred Howard. She's a Bay Area arts legend. She's lived in the Bay Area for her entire life. And she was generous enough to have me in her home for this interview about EJ, Betty Saar, and her own work. I walked in through the back of her garage, up some stairs, and perhaps into one of the most beautiful living rooms I've ever seen in my entire life. There are these giant gold mirrors that reflect the gorgeous afternoon light. Beautiful paintings that go all the way up to the ceiling, patterned carpets. The best word I can think to describe it is maybe ornate or regal, as if it was made for someone royal. Mildred is wearing a purple velour tracksuit. We walk through a hallway and sit down in the back of her house the part of her apartment where she houses her studio. I asked Mildred how she came to meet Betty and EJ. How did you guys meet? Uh, We met at a conference in Atlanta, uh, a black arts conference in Atlanta. And she liked the outfit that I made and said, I want to get to know her. She's now, I think, 95, and we speak every week. EJ Montgomery, I also met in the late 70s and she was a real real fighter to try and make the Oakland Museum more inclusive of the community and I'm when I mean community I don't mean just the San Francisco Bay Area I mean the community the art community at large and what she did was she introduced this area before it was even popular to uh, the art of so many African-Americans. She was a real trailblazer. And how would you describe EJ as an artist and as a a person? uh, I met EJ Montgomery in the 1970s. She made these incredible little jewelry boxes or these little metal boxes. And she's a printmaker. I was at that time working at a place called Fiberworks Center for the Textile Arts. Mm-hmm. And I was the only black person there. Um, there was no discussion really about other black artists and period. And I wondered why that was never a part of the discussion. So I decided to curate a show. And this was my first real job mm-hmm. in the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, And EJ was a part of that exhibition along with a number of other African, Raymond Saunders was in it, Um, Raymond Holbert, David Bradford, Laverne Wells Bowie, Carolyn Pleasance. I can go, and many of these people are not familiar to the broader art art, uh, arena because of various reasons of being black and in the United States of America. Right. What was the name of this exhibition? Local Color. E.J. was, and still I guess, is a a real advocate of showcasing artists by African Americans. Not only did she do that at the Oakland Museum, but also uh, she worked with other organizations like the Rainbow Sign to Uh, make sure that there was a representation of African-American artists. Then she went on to the State Department Mm -hmm. and 
many of us were able to travel to various parts of the world as a result of VJ, mm. as cultural ambassadors. Mildred Howard has been an artist in the Bay for nearly five decades now. It means that she's known and seen so much. For example, she actually used to attend the events at the Rainbow Sign. So you just mentioned the Rainbow Sign. Could you talk a little bit about that or what the Rainbow Sign was? Well, the Rainbow Sign was a cultural institution. Mm -hmm. They had exhibitions of art along with music and poetry and lectures, and they also had a restaurant. I know I saw, for the first time, works by Romare Bearton at the Rainbow Sign. But the Rainbow Sign also showed local artists who were not getting the kind of recognition that they should have. And mm -hmm. EJ was responsible for that. So this was somewhere that you frequented and went? Oh, uh, of course, because first of all, I'm a lover of music. And uh, they had like great musicians there. I, for the first time, I saw Taj Mahal there. And that was at a time when he played all of his all these different instruments and sang also there. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was one of the things. Nina Simone performed at the Rainbow Sign. James Baldwin spoke at the Rainbow Sign. There's been a lot of reporting on Mildred in recent years, specifically around the topic of home. Mildred makes these beautiful assemblage houses made out of glass bottles. They are breathtaking, especially when the light passes through them. She made these works while she was facing displacement in the place that she grew up. I think it was an easy scoop for journalists. This is not what we're going to be talking about today. I came into this interview with these kinds of big questions about what Black art means to Mildred, what it means to be a Black artist in the Bay. I mean, that's kind of what this whole season is centered on. Mission of Black art, because I see art as art. Right. You see art as art? Mm -hmm. You don't feel like they're... Hold on, I'm just going to make sure my... Microphone is all good to go. You don't say white art. Right. When I asked Mildred all these big general questions, it was clear that this isn't what she wanted to talk about. I think as journalists and radio producers, it's very easy for us to put people in boxes. Here's a black artist. Here's a black woman artist. She's an assemblage artist, a public art planner, a collage maker. She's the person who makes houses out of glass bottles. In reality, like so many people we've looked at this season, Mildred is not a single thing or signifier. She refuses to be. She is all of them and none of them them. And in that conversation, it was clear to me that Mildred wanted to talk about her art behind all those signifiers and adjectives, the meat and bones. Mildred invited me for a second day to conduct a better interview with her. And I'm so grateful that she did. We did this interview over two days. We took our time. The second day, she had lima beans going on the stove. For me, it was an excellent exercise in bearing witness to what she wanted to talk about. To this woman who is so full of knowledge and has lived such a full life as an artist. With a career spanning decades, how could she possibly just be one thing? 
I guess, how would you describe like your artistic practice in your own words? Like, do you identify as an assemblage artist? Do you, how would you describe? The way I describe what I do is basically that I am an artist and I'm a maker and creator of things. Mm. Uh, I don't really put myself into categories because I work cross-discipline, both in sculpture, uh, mixed media works, uh, assemblage, collage, mm. uh, sometimes photography. I think that that comes stems from my, my childhood and, and my upbringing because um, there, were, there was always things for me to create objects with. And that when I was young, I, I didn't know. I was just making things. Right. And because I'm curious, I think that's one reason why I walk across discipline, uh, disciplines. I get bored really easily. And so the challenge of learning a new media is, is like something that I cherish. When did you first start to identify as an artist? Like, how old were you? Where were you? What was that like for you? Well, next door to my house, the house where I grew up, there was a congregational church a leftist uh, congregational church. And they had arts and crafts classes. So I took arts and crafts classes there. I mean, I was before I went to start at school and dance classes. And then I, I studied ballet, modern, and Afro-Haitian. I studied with Ruth Beckford for really? years. Wow. Yeah, and then at 20, I think it was 20, I fell through a glass door and wrecked my leg. So. That stopped my oh dance my career because if, you know, I wanted to be really good. Yeah. And I was at the time. Wow. So I was already making art. I was designing clothes and doing those things. And I designed clothes more than I made art then. And then I just went into visual arts. And it wasn't until the late 60s that I realized that that was something that I could go into mm. as a profession. But I was in a, I, I did a, a, a painting and exhibited in an art fair and I saw that other people were interested. Mm. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is something I could do. Mm. And so that was when I realized that my work had the possibility of reaching a broader audience. Right. Do you know, do you remember what that painting was? Yeah, it was, was it? A, a painting, uh, a still life. Mm. It was a still life of bottles. And that's interesting because I also found some drawings from the late 60s of bottles. So it was something about how uh, light mm. hits uh, uh, glass objects. And later on, I mean, many later year, years later, I started working at the Exploratorium. And I was working in the Institute for Inquiry. And in that, we talked about uh, the how light reflects and refracts and what happens when it transmits and goes through objects. 
So it was almost like I made a complete circle, but at this, in making that circle, I was able to discover all these other things. Because hmm. the bottles show up in kind of like your sculptural practice as well, yes. with like the, the houses. And so it's like this light passing through mm-hmm. the walls of these houses made out of bottles. And what happens when that light goes through? Hmm. What happens? Can a clear bottle, does it have a clear shadow? Does a, does a green, what color is the green shadow? What happens when you lay one on top of the other? So though my, but at the same time, I was not, I was experimenting with the possibilities of using other kinds of materials to make art. When I'm in my studio, I'm thinking about a plethora of things while I'm working. And if you're working, ideas begin to build. And the harder you work and and the longer you work, the more your work informs you. Mm. Your work informs you. Yes, it does. Because everything you want to know is right there in front of you. Mm. You just have to know how to question and how to take the chance. That's so interesting. I thought you were going to say, like, oh, you can inform your work. But you're saying that, like, you learn things about yourself from the work that's well, in front of you. I learn things about myself, but I also learn from the materials that I'm working with. Yeah. Do you think you could give me an example? If you look at a glass of water, it's, you know, it's the whole thing. It's half glass of water. What is it in that, if you're looking at that glass of water, what do you think? I mean, the obvious is it half empty or half full, but there's so, there's so much more to that one. If you take this glass of water and you place it in a different light setting, what happens? Yeah. yeah. What happens if you add another glass of water and set next to it and rearrange them so that the light projects through those glasses? What happens then? It's so much more. What happens when you look at a shadow? What do you see? What's really happening? What's happening when you take this layer of paint and lay it on top of the other? I'm much more interested in those kind of when I'm making art. And that's not to say that I'm oblivious to everything that's happening in the world. No, I, I'm very aware of that. Right. But it's the engagement with like the materials. And- the materials, the ideas, yeah. the curiosity about the world in which we live in. So when I'm working, I'm working primarily for me. When I'm done, I just become a viewer or a spectator just like everyone else. But when I'm caught up in the moment of working, it's a different thing. What is this piece telling me? How do these materials work for me? Because if I don't understand it, why should I expect someone else to? Mildred's work is deeply rooted in her upbringing in the Bay Area. She's always thinking about the experiences of Black people across the country and the globe, the interconnectedness of our experiences. She takes these ideas and turns them into community-specific public art projects. 
you have any works that you're working on now that you feel excited about that you'd like to talk about or uh, right now uh i'm i'm doing some repairs on some older pieces mm. um i'm working on another large piece for the southeast community center in hunters point mm. where i'm scaled up these african bracelets that are 18 16 and um I think 18, 16, and 14 feet. Wow. Yeah, they are, it's African currency that was also used to adorn one's body. Wow. And what I like about that is that, for me, those bracelets are a metaphor for the hidden jewels that are in this community. Because uh, the Hunter's Point Bayview uh, area is one of the last communities and it's slipping away of predominantly African-Americans. But it's not just about African-Americans. Of course, yes, these are African elements, but various cultures adorn themselves with the jewelry. And now, if you look at the whole rap, the whole hip-hop movement, all the jewelry, the chains, the gold teeth, I mean, that's all a part of it. And so much has come come out of these communities that have helped inform not just San Francisco, but the world. Mm. And you could look across, whether it's... uh, the Bayview, Hunters Point, the Western Edition, South Berkeley, East Oakland, Watts, Lamert Park, uh, Baltimore, Harlem, East Side of Chicago, East St. Louis. I can go on and on of all these communities that have contributed to the wealth of this country. So it's about that Mm. it's about that those are the jewels the workers Mm. everyday people who you may pass on the street when I looked at it I'm thinking how perfect this is for this community because so many black people live at one time lived in the Bayview Hunters Point they worked in the shipyards as did my parents and some of my siblings when they first moved here that this is a real tribute to them. And now they're in the last, I would say, probably 15 years, they're discovering that it's a high rate of various forms of cancer due to the toxic waste that's in that area. That's another thing. We live in communities that are environmentally hazardous to our health. When you're going about starting a public art project like this, how do you think about making work that kind of embodies that community? Like, what is that process like for you? Well, I'm a part of that community. Right. And I reflect who I am also as a person. I mean, I'm no different from any of those people out in Hunters Point, East Oakland, West Oakland, Watts, Harlem, East St. Louis. 
I'm a part of that community. And people from those communities are dis- being displaced. I mean, if you think about as late as the 60s when James Baldwin said, it's not urban renewal, it's, quote, Negro removal. What are, yeah, what are the things that you wish were different in kind of like your engagements with the art world? The, the, art, world is, the art world is no different than anything else in this, in this country or in the world, in fact. Um, The, the country, I mean, the, the, the question is simple, but also multi-layered. If we think about the educational system in this country, if we think about what it's like to find uh, housing, uh, all those things are just related. This systemic uh, racism and how wealth is distributed has everything to do with it. Everything. Racism is deep. The laws in this country were not made for people who look like me. Yeah. And money makes a difference. Yeah. I don't have money that's left to me like many people do. Right. Um... It's, uh, it's, it's about, and it goes back to art. Art is a business, and I'm just fortunate that I like making art. Right. But it costs money to make art, period. Number one, to live in a place that you feel comfortable in, uh, to provide for your family, to have a, a great education. So... All of that's very real. It's very real, and particularly real for African Americans. Particularly. And that all goes back to 16, 19, and before. Mm -hmm. Would you say that history is something that you think about a lot with your work? I I find that... Um, sometimes you have these like remixes of historical images in your well, collages. I've always been interested in history and in geography. Because when I was young, we had these books around the house, and I would imagine being in those places. Mm. And I wanted to know. At one time, I was really good at geography. I could just, if you'd named a particular com- country, I could just you know, the natural resources, uh, what was the economy, where it's located, what is, all of those kinds of things. That was just fun for me. I mean, I can do it now, but if you don't use it enough, you, you lose it. So yes, I've, I'm interested in more of the world and how it informs what I do as an artist and how it informs what I do as a human. Do you often kind of think about things on like a global scale, like beyond borders? I feel like when we were talking yesterday, I was so appreciative of how you got me to think beyond just black art. And it well, seems like... Well, if we look at the world from space, right. we see bodies of water and land masses. I mean, that's what we're divided by, bodies of water. We're not... Uh, divided by these artificial barriers that are put up by those who are in charge. 
So I've always seen myself as a citizen of the world. And even though, yes, I have a passport and I've traveled, I just think it's ridiculous that I can't move from one place to another without having to be worry about it. Right. I look back at these like archival clips of EJ and she's like saying like, black art is important. It's important that we think about black art. But you said something really interesting that I'm interested in sitting with. And like, what what are your thoughts on kind of distinguishing? Well, the thing is, is that if one someone saw EJ's art, they wouldn't know that it was quote black art. We don't say, oh, is this white art or is this uh, uh, art by other cultural groups? The person who did it may be white right. or may be black, but it it puts us into this this box of way of categorizing us as the other. Mm. When we, if you went to any part almost of Africa, they don't ask, they don't, the kind of question of, of what is it like to be black, right. that, that's, that's something that's, I mean, I know what it's like to be black in this country. What about, what is it to be human? in a racist society. Towards the end of our interview, Mildred touches on something important about the history of women, specifically black women, who made these art spaces in the Bay Area. There are so many people who deserve our attention and praise. I just remember, I want to just say this about EJ. Okay. I'm glad she's getting recognition but it should have come a long time ago. She left the Oakland Museum and wait, went to work for the State Department. She sent, including myself, she was responsible for so many African Americans seeing other parts of the world. And then of course, when you're out there, then other people recognize that and then you, it's another domino effect. But EJ was really responsible for so many of us traveling to different parts of the world as cultural ambassadors. And do you feel like that's kind of been known amongst like your community, but maybe just like the broader public just doesn't know exactly like about like her contributions? I don't think they really know about EJ as they, they probably don't know about Samella Lewis. Right. Samella Lewis uh, was a student of Elizabeth Catlett and she wrote uh, several books on African-American art, before it was even popular. It was always popular to us, but to the broader public, she did so. And she even started a, a museum in the May Company in Los Angeles. Alonzo Davis had a gal gallery in the Crenshaw that showed Betty Saar and people in Southern, probably David Hammonds and a number of, of artists in the uh, in the Los Angeles area. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like doing this podcast is kind of just what you said, like none of this is new <laughs> or the stuff that people are doing now. I mean, it's different, but people have been doing this, right? Especially right. black women who have been like, whose work hasn't been appreciated. Oh no, no, it hasn't been. And their work and, and, and the information that they hold inside of them that they know that needs to be told to so many, none of that has been really 
given the right kind of uh, recognition that it should. Thank you so much. Is there okay. anything that we didn't, I didn't ask you that you want to talk about? If you, well, we can do that over Zoom if, if there's something else. Something else, okay. Yeah. I feel good about, do you feel good about the? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I think it's, it's gonna okay. be great. It's, you know, I always think I could do better. Um, I, I should have ended by reading a poem. You want to read a poem? You can still read it. I want to read. Oh, okay. Poem. Let me. Oh, here it is. Awesome. Perfect. Okay, so I think it printed out all of them, so maybe it's like the third page. The other piece uh, is by Catherine Smith, who I met when I, again, when I was at the Atlantic Center for the Art as a master artist there. And I commissioned her to do this piece for Stevenson Street in San Francisco, which will be incorporated into a public arts uh, piece that I'm doing. It's called Rainy Night on Stevenson Street. On Stevenson Street, on a January night where the docks once reached, hollow the small of my arched back. I am San Francisco on a rainy corner of the financial district. Beneath dark sky, bright footsteps, I drip light. From cornices of olive branches, I ran falling from cast iron pilasters. I am mother of pearl. Short street, rippling like shot silk. I am memory of shipbuilders and saloon keepers. I am blue. Indigo died, filling the valley, the stitching of seamstresses. I am needlework of migration. Street lit relic of prayer, a rumor of gold spilled on the sidewalk. I am the ghost waving goodbye. Children holding hands, walking out of the museum, shouting above the rain. I am lovers soaked by downpour. I am the workers hurting, heading home, each one a bronze core, a penny, the copper face of the shore across the water. That's gorgeous. And that just that's incredible. gorgeous. That Ooh. that one gave me chills. That this, one's beautiful too. But that this, one really it gives, gives me chills. Gives me chills. Yes. It gives me chills. Cause it's so San Francisco. Exactly. It's so San Francisco. It's so the Bay Area. Absolutely. This one, I know. It doesn't bring chills to my eyes. <laughs> yeah. So those are the poems. That was beautiful. There. Thank you. You're welcome. I think that was a perfect ending. That was so yeah. good. <laughs> When the interview ended, we had realized that the flame on Mildred's lima beans had turned off and that it was actually just leaking gas into the apartment for like an hour. We immediately opened up the windows and I stayed and talked with her for a while as we aired the apartment out. We talked about how delicious garlic confit is, especially with the beans that she's cooking. She invited me to stroll through her apartment and take a look around. It is entirely covered in beautiful art, big prints, small prints, some of her works, works of the people that she admires. Mildred makes some appointments, responds to calls. We gush about Sadia Hartman's recent works. We talk about our families being from here and the types of artists that we enjoy. She had these beautiful dark black grapes sitting on her counter next to some avocados. 
You spend a while meditating and sitting with them. We try to put them in different colored bowls until it feels just right. We land on a black bowl for the avocados and a watermelon colored bowl for the grapes. She says, there we go. That's right. I'm not sure there's a snappy takeaway from this episode for our black art futures. I think that would defeat the purpose of this whole conversation we just had. I feel so lucky to have been able to conduct this interview for this episode. It is a real gift and treasure to be able to commune with these folks to whom we owe so much. I guess I'm thankful that the storytelling for this season has afforded me the opportunity to appreciate women who have shaped our communities while they're still here. These webs of galleries, scenes, and centers of the Bay Area Black art scene are largely created by Black women. They run this shit. Women like Joyce Gordon, Ashara Ekundayo, Thelma Harris, Anika Barber, Melora and Melanie Green, and so many more. It is the labor of these women, the relationships, collaboration, and spaces that they craft that make our art cultures possible, that make whole movements possible. Take a moment and think of the people, the people of marginalized genders who make you feel seen, make you feel at home, make you beans. Don't ever take that for granted. I know that in our Black art futures, we absolutely can't afford to lose another generation of Black women's history. This time, I know we won't. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raw Material, Visions of Black Futurity. This podcast is a production of SF MoMA. This episode was written, produced, and sound designed by me, Babette Thomas, with production help from Maisa Plant-Graham, Erica Gangsi, Santino Gonzalez, Liza Yeager, and Kevin Carr. The music you heard in this episode is from the illustrious Georgia Ann Muldrow performing as G.O.T. Be sure to check out her music wherever you listen. Thank you so much to Mildred Howard for such an incredible and generous interview and also for all that she's contributed to the art communities in the Bay Area. We'll be back soon with the last episode of Raw Material Season 7. I'll see you then. (laughs) 